Hey Artemis, it's Ashley Chance. We're taking a break over the holidays and we want to revisit the most popular series we've ever recorded, a deep dive into ungulate research with the scientists at the Monteith shop. You've written to us about this series. You love the scientists. We love the scientists. There's the animals, mule deer, bighorn, moose. And I think this series was such a hit because it showed us so much about the science of some of these icons of the big game world. The more we know about these species, the richer our sporting journey. Without further ado, I'll let Marsha take it from here. Artemis endeavors to get more women in the field and on the water. To support women as leaders in the conservation movement. To ensure the vitality of our lands, waters, and wildlife. Artemis endeavors to change the face of conservation. Welcome to the Artemis Podcast special series, Chasing Ungulate Tales with Monteith Shop. I can't tell you how excited I am to sit down with a bunch of wildlife scientists and just really geek out over ungulate behavior. Um, I'm, I'm pretty stoked. And joining me as co-host for this series is Advocacy and Legislative Liaison for Wyoming Wildlife Federation, Artemis co-founder, my friend and fellow ungulate nerd, Jess Johnson. <laughs> Hi, Jess. I think I'm most proud of fellow ungulate nerd because, <laughs> boy, is that true. <laughs> yep. Yeah, it's going to be great. I'm looking forward to the series with you. I, I think I've always said that uh, I, I never get starstruck on celebrities. I do, however, get a little starstruck on scientists. So I'm really excited for this. <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, this is our first episode in the series. Our guest today is Rebecca Levine, whose work is focused on the thermal ecology of moose. I'm so excited to learn all about moose. Hi, Rebecca. Hi, how's it going? Good. I think I should start this out by letting you know that I think Bruce Bruce, <laughs> I think moose are my um, spirit animal. So really? I'm super excited to learn more about them. <laughs> oh, I want to hear all about why. <laughs> um, maybe at the end of the podcast, we'll close with that. <laughs> let's, let's dive into some more interesting stuff first. <laughs> well, I, I think the uh, the if, if moose is what reflects your soul, I would say that moose are a little antagonistic with mine after this last hunting trip. But uh, maybe stories for another time. That's oh, right. Man. No, i I want to hear the I want to hear the story. I've been waiting actually for a week to hear the story. <laughs> oh, maybe later. But uh, I'm more excited about the science right now. Okay. All right. Well, I'm gonna flag it for for later. Um, <laughs> Rebecca, where are you calling us from? I am calling from my house in Laramie, Laramie, oh, you're in Laramie. Wyoming. Yeah. Nice. Um, now, the Monteith shop is based out of Cheyenne. Is that right? No, we're based out no. of Laramie. Okay. <clears throat> yeah, we're all at the that. university. Cool. Can you tell us a little bit about who you are? Yeah, I am. So it's funny that I'm first in this interview series because I am uh, the newest woman of the Monteith shop. I just started my master's under Dr. Kevin Monteith this semester. So I'm very new to the whole process of researching moose. I'm excited to talk to you all about all the potential that this project has. I, I don't have as much to tell about things that we've already done. Um, but I grew up in Rhode Island and Minnesota and came to Wyoming two years ago to work for Brittany and Rachel, who you'll be talking to later um, about bighorn sheep. And from there, I kind of stuck around with the lab and convinced Kevin to let me huh. become one of his grad students. And now I'm here studying moose. Fantastic. And if I remember correctly, you're, uh, you're a hunter, uh, but a newer hunter. Is that right? I hopefully will be able to call myself a hunter this weekend. Actually. Yeah, my first trip, I'm going out with the other women of the shop and we're going pronghorn hunting around Alcova. Oh, I, I think, uh, I think you have plans on the books, Rebecca. I, I, I think you're a hunter already. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Yep. Okay. The second, the yeah. second you put it on your calendar, you can call yourself a hunter. Um, <laughs> and then it just goes from there. Yeah. I'm really excited. And also like particularly about the environment that I'll get to have my first hunt in. I can definitely, be someone who gets flustered and in my head. So being around lots of very supportive people who know what they're doing, I think it's going to be a good weekend. And you said you're going antelope hunting? Yeah. Oh, that's great. Oh, well, I mean, I'm partial to antelope meat, so um, I hope you're successful. Um, and I hope uh, you have a good meal waiting for you this weekend in some antelope heart and tenderloins. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, me too. 
Okay, let's talk about moose. Uh, could you talk? <laughs> uh, tell us about your research. Yeah, so the general kind of motivation behind my work is that around half of all southern moose populations, so all the moose in Wyoming, we would consider part of the southern region of where moose exist, around half of those are in decline. And there are a lot of different reasons, depending on what population you're talking about. There could be many factors influencing that decline. But the one overarching thing that is impacting moose in these southern areas is increasing summer temperatures. So that's where we get into what you mentioned about how I'm studying thermal ecology. So I most broadly want to understand how moose cope with summer heat and then how we can apply those coping mechanisms to management. So, so why? Oh, okay. so <laughs> I have a list of questions already. Marsha, I think you should go. Uh, you're very excited about moose. So, <laughs> uh, so why, I, I guess my biggest question right now is why is increasing summer temperatures an issue for moose? What about them we makes it a problem? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, if you think about moose compared to their relatives, like mule deer and elk, they're much larger and they also have very dark bodies. So the larger an animal is, the more heat they produce. And then to have such a dark coat that also draws in heat. And then the cherry on top of their overheating risk is that they don't have the ability to sweat like elk do. And that means that they have to deal with heat exclusively through behavior and, and where they choose to be in their, in their environment. Just do anybody, did, has work been done or do people know like what the evolutionary reason for moose not sweating is? That's my I, question too. Oh my God. I have no idea. And I've spent so long trying to figure it out. Like where in, in this branch of evolution between moose and other deer species like where did they lose this and why i have no do clue. other do all other deer species sweat um i couldn't tell you with certainty about all other deer species but i think that in north america moose are the only ones that don't have that ability oh they just get weirder and weirder they do i know they? they're very <laughs> they're, if they're... i had to make a very educated and um, hypothetical guess about why they don't sweat. It's because they evolved in these like, boreal and polar areas where they maybe didn't need to cool down very often. And um, that's my best guess, but who knows? It makes me rethink them as my spirit animal, though, because I... <laughs> <laughs> You, you, you don't uh, you don't not sweat I don't not sweat let's just put it that way yeah <laughs> I, so I have a question you know with the thermal you know thermal regulation and and their choices for how they find that um, I've heard I think just more rumor I don't even know like in what kind of conversations I've heard this but it's stuck as a sort of theory where, especially in Wyoming, in these places where we have very heavy beetle kill um, and we are losing thermal color cover because of it, and we're losing like the deep shade pockets and stuff because of all of this beetle kill and all of the similar, similarly aged timber that moose are having a harder and harder time finding those big cooling spots. Um, I have no idea if I heard this just in a legislative meeting or like where, if it had any kind of education or if it was just an opinion behind it. But um, are you guys looking at that kind of thing or looking at the environmental factors that are not just like a warming climate, but like things like beetle kill and, and fire and everything else? Yeah, absolutely. I'm really glad you brought this up. The short answer is yes, we are looking at that. Um, a little bit of a longer answer is the work that I'm doing is focused in the Absorica Mountains close to Matitsi. But I'm actually building on some previous work done by a grad student, Tana Verju, who is now working on a PhD looking at bison, all like super fascinating. But the work that she did was in the snowies, in beetle kill areas, looking at how moose select 
shady spots or moist soil to bed down in to help cool them. Oh, I love this. How do you guys, uh, like, how, how, what are the mechanisms of this study? I'm assuming you guys have GPS collars, but I think I heard something and maybe I saw a short clip on Instagram of a moose with a video collar on. Is that your project? It is. Yeah. This is super exciting. (laughs) I, yeah, it feels like, um, it almost feels like intrusive to watch right. the video sometimes. It's like, this is too like, personal. I shouldn't be allowed to watch this. Um, but yeah, so we, the project that I'm working on, we collared moose in the Gray Bull and Wood Rivers close to Matitsi. And the females that we collar have GPS collars that also have a camera unit. And we're hoping to get all sorts of information, ideally some information about when they give birth and calf survival, but also it's just like endless possibilities for what might show up on those videos. So each of these individuals, you know, I think it's really easy to anthropomorphize the individual often, especially like when we get to know them with a caller number or a video or things like that. But the information that they're giving for the population level is just Mm -hmm. huge. Like everything we learn, even even, you know, little tiny bits, everything we learn seems to be such a massive impact. So these individuals are really kind of the superheroes of their species in the sense of like just what we learn from them. But um, it is a population level impact. And I'm curious when you guys trap, trap, uh, net gun, I assume is how you guys are capturing these moose. Um, what are the kind of things that you're taking? Are you taking like I mean, I've been on some of the bighorn sheep and the mule deer captures where they're looking at fat content. Are they pregnant? Um, taking like genetic information and disease information and body quality. Uh, is that kind of similar with what you guys are checking with these moose when you have them? Or I just, I can't even wrap my head around putting a collar on a moose just size wise. So um, walk me through kind of like what you guys do uh, around like even just like when you have them there and in your hands. Yeah, yeah. So it is pretty similar to some of the processes that we uh, use with other ungulates. One difference is that instead of net gunning, we actually dart them with a combination of three dr- three sedative drugs that immobilize them. Um, and it is possible, and many people do net gun moose. But the areas it where I so scary, I know it does right. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, the first, basically the first thing that I did for the whole project was to meet Kevin, my advisor, and Sam Dwinell, who works in the lab, to meet them in Matitsi. And like within 12 hours of meeting them there, we were in a helicopter doing moose captures. But I was super nervous. And Kevin, Kevin's way of calming me down was by telling me all of the times that he has released a moose after net gunning and processing it. And it's like turned around and started to move. Back oh God. Forward. So I was That's calming you down. <laughs> yeah. It was not helpful at all. Um, and I was very, very relieved when we arrived at our capture locations and there wasn't enough snow to net gun. Um, so you need like some good padding, especially for moose since they're so big, like the bigger you are, the harder you fall. And there back wasn't enough, too. <laughs> yeah. Not enough snow to safely net gun them. So we do, start them. And then the process is a little more logistically complicated. There's a helicopter that is darting and then a helicopter that is shuttling us to the immobilized moose. Mm -hmm. And when we get there, yeah, we do take a lot of measurements to try and assess health at a population level. So we look at body size, we look at nutritional condition, which is something that um, we measure using an ultrasound device to look at the thickness of fat along the rump, and that can tell us a lot about how they're doing nutritionally. We pull a tooth to get the age of the moose, and what else do we do? All sorts of stuff. We do some tick transects because moose are particularly susceptible to high parasite loads. When you say transects, is that just like looking at a portion of skin and seeing how much uh, in skin? activity is on it (laughs) yeah yeah exactly so with all with all science things you kind of want a standardized method so we have this like 10 centimeter stick that we use and there are four specific locations on each moose where we place that and if there is a tick 
touching that stick, then we collect it and and count that as. What are those uh, locations? Yeah. There's um, along the neck, along the front shoulder, along kind of like the spine, and then along the rump. Mm. All very um, ticky locations for wildlife. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why are moose particularly, uh, what is the, uh, sensitive to parasites? And sensitive is not the word you used, but that's the word that's coming to my brain. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's a good question. I There are a lot of different parasites that affect moose. And I think one thing that is increasing the Im- their, that negative impact on moose is other species that moose haven't historically overlapped with, overlapping with them now. So the best example I can give is in areas in the Midwest, now moose overlap with white-tailed deer in ways that they didn't. And white-tailed deer can act as a vector for parasites. So they'll carry these parasites um, and those parasites will be more present in the area than they would have been if there were just moose there and no white-tailed deer. You know, the more I learn about white-tailed deer, the more I'm standing behind a created bumper sticker that says, eat more white-tail. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think they often get painted, especially in, like, Western circles. I feel like they're the villain of the deer family, and I, I don't want to contribute to that, but... Yeah, no, it's not their fault at all. Uh, we create great little castles of agriculture for them, and they thrive in that. So, so we really we brought them there. But um, I mean, they taste good. I think eat more white tail is just beneficial for everyone. Yeah, it's a win win. <laughs> it's a win win. Um, so you take in uh, transects of of the pesticide or pesticide pest sort of load on moose, and and what else do you guys do when you're um, when you have them there and in hand? Any yeah. disease screen? Um, we look at their ear cropping. So one symptom of this heartworm that moose can get is that their ears kind of like get cropped. They don't. They aren't a full ear. It looks like they're kind of cut off. So we check for that. And then um, what else do we do? Oh, a a big thing when we're capturing females is that we check if they're pregnant. And um, that is slightly more complicated in moose than it is in deer or in sheep, because in deer and sheep, they're small enough that the ultrasound can, <laughs> like on the surface of the body, can like pick up whether or not there's a fetus. But with moose, they're a little bit too big for that. So we actually have to put on... Uh, I don't know if this is too graphic for the podcast. No, I, no, I, I, not at all. <laughs> but I have to put on one of these, like, uh, um, like, like checking cow, probably. Yes, exactly. Like, so, like, glove like, that goes all the way yeah. up to your shoulder. Yep. You yep. know exactly what I'm talking yep, about. Yeah. So, this long <laughs> glove, and you have to, like, basically clear all of the poop out of this moose so that then we can do what's called transrectal ultrasonography in order to check if they're pregnant or not. And if they are pregnant, then we fit them with a vaginal implant transmitter that is expelled when they give birth, so we know the timing of that birth. For for those of you listening and that will keep listening on this podcast, you'll hear probably a lot about these uh, transmitters, and you, they'll be referred to as VITs very often. So VIT is the the little GPS tracker that is inserted, as I assume, up against the cervix of uh, each female animal and is expelled when they give birth and then starts a uh, transmission so folks know when and where a baby was born and they can either go and recapture and do some uh, some more workup or they just have that as knowledge. Exactly, yeah. And actually jumping back to the camera collars, mm-hmm. for the moose work, the when the VIT is expelled, that actually triggers the camera collar to start recording. Oh, oh interesting. So cool. Yeah. yeah. It's pretty awesome. I'm very, very excited. Yeah, we'll be like little snippets of like baby knob, like little knobby legged baby moose wobbling around already. 
Not yet. So we'll, in order to access the camera caller information, we have to get the whole caller back. So in March, when we capture, okay. when we recapture all of these moose, I'll be able to spend many, many hours going through and hopefully watching some very cute and awkward baby moose. Oh, oh I, if you need help, I will. Try. I know. I was just gonna yeah. Say, I'll <laughs> Video that. party. I'll bring the popcorn. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, this is really amazing to hear. Um, the I was curious uh, when you were talking about the ultrasound. Um, one, like having seen the, these ultrasound done on sheep and deer, and it is one they're much smaller. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I was curious though because I, you know, it's pretty normal to see twins in a mule deer, mm-hmm. um, and, and I would say less normal, but still not hair like eyebrow raising to see twins in a sheep. Uh, what are mooses? What are moose sort of pregnancy cycles like, and and are they they don't seem like the kind of animal that has twins very often. And, um, you know, I'm kind of liking them a little, I'm a horse gal and I'm liking, <laughs> liking them a little to like a larger hooved animal, um, and how much energy it takes. Like what is their pregnancy cycle? How long are they pregnant? What's, what's, um, you know, do they have twins? Do they recruit twin or their calf pretty often? Do they stay with them for a year or two sort of run us through that life cycle? And if I could, I would add, when is the rut and how long is the, how long are they pregnant for? Yeah. So Gestation. the rut is early October, late, late September, early October, basically now or end, it's beginning to end now. So that's when they mate and then they give birth at mid-May to mid-June or early June. So how many months is that? Seven-ish? Eight? Yeah. Wow. Pretty. That's uh, I mean, that's what a cow essentially is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And as far as twinning, I, we haven't yet had enough like sample size to know in the specific area where I'm working, what pregnancy rates and what twinning rates are reliably. But from what I have read, it's pretty uncommon to see twins in the subspecies of moose that exists in this area. It's much more common in larger subspecies, like the ones in Alaska are more likely to have twins. Um, but it can happen. I One of the biologists that I work with, Bart Kroger, sets up all these amazing trail cameras, and he sent me a trail camera snapshot of a set of twins in Matitsi. Yeah, I've seen here in Lander, I've seen a mama with twins, but that had been the first time I'd ever, you know, I spent an exorbitant amount of time outside and that was the first time ever seeing a moose with twins and it was special. They were so freaking cute. Oh my goodness. Yeah, it's so cool. And as far as how long they stay with mom, they will honestly stay as long as they can. There are a lot of reports for most ungulate species of mom, like, kind of having to aggressively chase her yearling <laughs> away right before she gives birth. Um, yeah. yeah. So they'll make the most of of sticking with mom. Smart, hey. smart moose. Yeah, me too, honestly. I'd hate right her now. for as long as she'd let me. So I have I have two questions. One is you mentioned subspecies, and so I'm curious what the different subspecies of moose are. And also uh, something you said earlier made me wonder what their historical range is. Yeah, um, two great questions. The subspecies question, the subspecies in Wyoming and Utah, Colorado, Montana is Shiras. The Latin name is, I'm going to butcher this because I only read read these words, but uh, Al says <laughs> Nobody Al will says never know. We don't, none of us speak Latin. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, I shouldn't um, then, say that. I don't know who's listening. Oh yeah, maybe we have yeah. If there are some avid Latin speakers, feel free to reach out and correct my pronunciation. Um, and then there are other subspecies. So moose are actually circumpolar, which means they exist like all around um, the northern hemisphere, around the pole. Um, so there are subspecies in Sweden. There's a different subspecies in Russia and China and then there's I think uh there's one in Alaska and one in Canada as well 
there but honestly to be honest the whole like subspecies designation is definitely not my sub my specialty mm-hmm. <laughs> um the uh shiris moose you know mm-hmm. it here in it's obviously what we see here in wyoming um and i would assume in montana and, and others um i i'm curious you know, we're in the middle, at least in the state that I live in, uh, in the middle of talking about migration a lot and mm-hmm. a lot of the uh, science around it and figuring out where they go. And and we hear a lot about mule deer. We hear a lot about uh, elk and, and some about bighorn sheep, but I don't hear a lot about moose. And I'm curious, you know, as you're studying thermal cover, um, we have this, this desire to migrate from a lot of mule deer that is surfing the green wave. It's following the green up, getting the more nutritious feed as the year goes. And I'm curious if moose do that. I'm also curious if they do that in response to thermal cover and like climate. So like, um, do they migrate? I guess this question one, um, are they all migrators or do you have some resident populations is question two. And then I'll move on to my other five questions after that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, but they do migrate there. It's not, not in the same way as mule deer. Like with mule deer, you get these amazing dramatic mountain range crossing migrations. And that's not something that I'm aware of in moose, but they will, um, like as you accurately stated both for forage quality and to escape the heat they'll migrate up in elevation during the summers to get to windier and cooler areas that also have some younger yummy new vegetation for them to eat but there are also a lot of moose that don't migrate at all and and hang out in similar areas all year Uh, so as far as oh go ahead oh I was just curious so it's kind of dependent on like we don't have like a, a designated like the great moose migration of the Tennessee <laughs> or things like that you know <laughs> yeah 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 no that's that's one thing that we're excited to look into as we um continue to call our animals is to see who's migrating who's not migrating and if there are any patterns or trends that we can kind of reveal about that um and you also you asked a question about like moose and the history of moose in this area that I wanted to jump back to because I think it's really, really interesting. Moose are actually very, very new to Wyoming and Utah and Colorado. They, uh, there's no archaeological evidence of moose in Wyoming. And they arrived in Yellowstone in the 1800s and have since expanded. So when, we, when I'm thinking about moose, I am often like reminding myself that um, they haven't always been here. And since they are such a large animal and they eat so much, they can have a really big impact on the landscape where they exist. So kind of have to look at all of this stuff that I'm studying through the lens of like, oh, they, they kind of just got here in terms of ecological times. So like, how does that change how we're thinking about the things affecting these populations? It's interesting because so, moose are such a designate, designated and desirable like hunting species. Uh, I know, you know, it's a once in a lifetime, maybe if you're really lucky, twice in a lifetime tag here in Wyoming. Um, and in often places, you know, that's you just get it once. Um, mm-hmm. And it's interesting because, you know, a lot of a lot of desire to hunt and a lot of it being a very desirable hunt leans on the fact of like more moose being in places and how are moose populations doing and hunters being really, really concerned and, and invested in making sure that these populations are doing well. Um, I think that's really interesting and it's a maybe interesting psychological, sociological thing to dive into considering they are, I mean, technically non-native to this area, but they're here now. And they seem to have found a space in this ecological layer around the state. Um, I, like the the damage mitigation, if they have any, hasn't been something that's made any kind of newsworthy things. Um, <laughs> just an, an interesting, an interesting sort of what I would realization, I guess. Because um, I love moose. I want them to. Yeah. I want them to stay here. I'm selfish on that one. <laughs> Well, and that's one thing that I find really exciting about getting to work with moose is since they are this big, charismatic species, I think it's a really cool 
entry point for people into like getting to know what's going on in the ecosystem that they exist in. It's like, I feel like it's easy to get people to buy in right away. And then I can start talking about all, all sorts of things that are connected to moose, which is a species that most people kind of inherently find wonderful and mysterious. Uh so I have a question about temperature. So mm-hmm. given that they're relatively new to this area, kind of what at what temperature do they start exhibiting cool down behaviors? And what, aside from uh, shade seeking, are those behaviors? Yeah, there's a lot of debate about what temperature, like at what temperature they begin to have a response, like an overheating response. There were like, traditional metrics looking at that basically use like captive moose and put them in overheating situations and increasing the temperature until they there was a measured response whether it was heart rate or respiratory rate Um, but there's a lot of work in more free-ranging populations happening right now where there's all sorts of really cool technology where you can do these implants and uh, additions to GPS collars that can get great information about respiratory rate and heart rate. And we're finding that we don't know as much as we think we know about those thresholds for when they start to overheat. Um, so yeah, I don't want to give too specific an answer since there's a lot of debate going on there, but generally in the ballpark of like once, once we get above, um, 55 degrees it's something that that to start considering in in terms of how moose are selecting habitat um and then you already brought up one of the ways that they mitigate heat is by migrating to higher elevation areas or areas with better cover bedding down during the day is a huge one something that tana found in the snowies is that they often bed down in standing water and that really helps to pull heat away from them. But one of the layers that I'm very excited to look at is how they balance these um, like heat mitigation choices with other demands in their life. So mm. we have both male and female moose collared and those they have really different life demands. Like one has a calf, the other doesn't. They can occupy very different habitat, and I'm really excited to see if there are differences between males and females in how they deal with heat. Fascinating. Oh, I have a I have a whopper of a question. It's three part, and I, I think it's you know we're looking at the time and and how much. Uh, gosh, how much I've learned just like right now on moose is incredible. Um, but but if you're ready for it and this comes with a caveat of like if this is just like if if there isn't an answer also feel free to say that um but my 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 sort of three part is 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 what are the top three things that are that moose are facing right now the top three like problems the top three whether it's it's thermal cover or or ticks or a disease the top three things that moose are facing right now and Here's the big part. What is one thing for each of those that an individual can do to help? Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, I apologize that for is jumping a great on that question. One, you can warn the other scientists that this is probably coming to them too. <laughs> okay, yeah. I'll, I'll let them know they should start brainstorming now. Um, um, and there may not be, you know, whether it's just something of get involved in like local habitat work or things like that, that is a perfectly acceptable thing. I'm just, I'm curious, one, what are the top three uh, issues facing moose um, primarily? And then maybe we can go into what we can do about them. And I'll see if I have some help with that. <laughs> Yeah. Um, okay. So let I'll, I'll preface this by saying that um, I'm sure you would get different answers from everyone who studies moose. So um, I would be excited to hear what other moose people think about this. Um, habitat loss is a huge one. Like we every day are converting what was once good moose and ungulate habitat into like towns and subdivisions and farms and um 
so yeah, there's just less, there are fewer moose on the landscape and there will likely be fewer moose on the landscape just because there's less space for them as humans expand what we're doing. Um, so in that sense, I would say get involved with local government and zoning and see what your federal and state and county uh, land management agencies are doing to to preserve habitat and make sure that although humans have things that we need and infrastructure that we need to build, that there's a balance there. Um, that would be one. Another one, uh, since I am studying thermal ecology, is climate change. And that's a much bigger question of what people can do about that. I would say put pressure on your representatives to um, like create regulation that that helps us reduce fossil fuel output. That's a big one. And then number three is disease. We talk a lot in Wyoming about chronic wasting disease, and that's a disease that hasn't hit moose hard yet, but it is something that affects all cervids, so it can impact moose. Um, I, I'll preface this one. Um, I'm so glad you said it. I didn't want to set you up to say it, but I'm so glad you said it. Um, Wyoming, and those of you in Wyoming, Wyoming recently passed its chronic wasting disease management plan. And it's it's the uh, response of a very diverse committee sitting down and coming to consensus. Um, and it was incredible that they did it. Wyoming Game and Fish did a great job, as did you know uh, all of the different entities involved. And uh, this, this entire management plan is based around public input and public acceptance of this. So I would argue and say that one of the biggest things you can do as a resident anywhere, but especially as a resident in Wyoming right now, is educate yourself on chronic wasting disease, educate yourself on the fact and fiction of it. And, um, you know, Wyoming's had this disease around for a long time. We know what it is to do nothing. Now we have an opportunity to try something. We're going to have to have some really difficult choices as hunters and anglers ahead of us because of it. Um, so I just say educate yourself on it um, without saying or leaning too hard on which way or how you should think. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. And the thing with CWD is that like it's been around for a while, but it's also like it's a really complicated issue. So um, like even I, like, I try to know a lot about it and I don't know what exactly the right thing to do is. So just in general, it's like be involved in whatever your um, wildlife agency is doing and to put pressure on them to continue to put some effort into figuring out ways to address CWD because clearly ignoring it isn't helping. Yeah. <laughs> We know what doing nothing does. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Rebecca, what's that was, the time? That was, you know, for just throwing this question at you, that was very well done. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Rebecca, what's the timeline of your research? Um, so the timeline has been a little bit, um, well, yeah, the timeline has been impacted by COVID. I was supposed to start my field research this past summer, but there were some um, regulations imposed by the university to limit the spread uh, in Wyoming, which I think was a great thing, but it did mean that I didn't get to do my field work. So next summer and the summer after that, I'll be in Matitsi assessing the thermal quality of the bed sites that these moose use and also checking in on them to look at calf recruitment and um, hopefully track antler growth in the males that we have collared. And after those two years, we'll use what we find to try and answer some questions about how moose deal with heat and also what impacts those choices that they make about how to deal with heat, like how those kind of cascade into affecting their nutrition overall. Jess, did you have any other questions? How much I mean, time do we have? <laughs> I was going to say, let me caveat that. <laughs> Jess, do you have any other questions you'd like to ask right now? <laughs> um, 
Yeah, I guess so. So looking at your research and, and what you find out, um, pie in the sky, you know, dream as big as you want to with this one. What's an outcome you'd like to see of your research? Like, like, would you like to see it used to make larger decisions or, or, um, yeah, I mean, I just swing for the fences on this one. If it's everything and the things that you found out, how would you like this research to be used? And, and, um, where would you like to see it published? And, um, what, you know, what kind of outcome are you looking with that? Cause I think I, I'm asking this because I think so often so many great studies um, get published in a journal um, that a lot of other academics read, but not the layman. And um, with the science and the communications that Monteith Shop has been doing, I see that science finally reaching outside of just the academia and I see it starting to reach the people. And um, I think that's incredible and it's exciting. So I want you to dream big on that one. Like what kind of change does this like science help? Oh, wow. Um, that's such a good question. Let's see. So on, I'll start with just a very management focused um, outcome that I hope to see, like identifying what sorts of habitat moose need in order to deal with temperatures that are like for the foreseeable future, only going to continue to increase. Um, I would love to be able to identify specific types of habitat that will help moose be more resilient and hopefully allow um, managers to, to promote the type of habitat that means that we still get to have moose here, like 50, 100, 150 years from now. So that would be absolutely wonderful if I could contribute to it's like information that helps moose continue to be here in Wyoming. Um, and then kind of shifting away from management towards a little bit more of the research arena. Most of the work that's going on with Kevin and with the rest of the lab is focused on nutrition. And I'm a little bit more focused on the thermal aspect of things. And I would I would be really excited to start to build a bridge between those two disciplines and see like, okay, how do these thermal factors impact when a moose is eating, how much a moose is eating, and then the consequences of that being like how healthy they are, how, how their reproductive success is affected by that. So I think building a bridge between these two areas would be really fun and, and open up a lot of cool, um, further research and then maybe also then shifting towards like the broader community outside of management and outside of research. I have a background in education before I started wildlife work I was teaching and I would just be really excited if I could use my work as a way to get people connected with ungulates, ungulates in general and moose are a high profile species but it would be so cool if that could be if I could use that as an entry point for people to start getting interested in in all sorts of other species on the landscape. And particularly, I um, have a, a dream of using my work um, as a way to get Spanish speakers involved in what's going on with wildlife management in the state. I grew up in a Spanish speaking household and have lived in a couple of different areas in Wyoming that have Spanish speaking populations. And I think there's a lot of interest there, but just not a lot of um, like ways to access yeah, resources. So I would be so excited if, um, as I'm doing my research, I could be communicating that in Spanish and be like helping game and fish create resources for people in Spanish and like opening up hunter opportunities for people who want to do hunter education in Spanish, like all that sort of thing. I, I would just love to be able to use what I'm working on to do that. There was a push a little bit ago in Wyoming, um, and they did it for a little bit. Um, and maybe the time is now to resurrect this, uh, to change all the fishing regulations so that they were printed both in English and Spanish, um, especially for the sort of more populated areas with a higher uh, Spanish speaking population. Um, so, so there is that thought and and there are folks within the game and fish that have have considered that um but hopefully and those of you listening in wyoming if you think this is a good idea um 
you know, it's, it's the, it's in response to what the people need. So we got to talk about it if it's an issue. Yeah. I think you're very right. (laughs) Yeah. I'm, I think it would be great. And we also like, we talk so much about, um, worry about declining hunter numbers and, um, like thinking about the ways that recreation and like fishing and hunting, how can we open that up to more and more people to address hunter, hunter numbers instead of just thinking, oh man, people don't hunt like they used to. Like there are things that we could do to bring more people in. And Oof. Kansas just published their regulations in Spanish. Uh, and oh, I think that's cool. a fantastic precedent to set. And I would love to see it happen in more states. Yeah. Wow. I, I didn't know working that. on it in this one. <laughs> All right. Um, I had one more, you know, like I'd say I have one more question, one more question a hundred <laughs> times. I, I will say one last one that I think is really, really important is, is can you give us a couple of ways um, that people can help you with your work? Whether it's, uh, is there, is there funding that's ever needed? Is it just communications? I mean, I know, I think we can, we can say following Monteith shop, whether it's on the website or on Instagram, um, it's M-O-N-T-E-I-T-H dot shop um on instagram but uh is there other ways that we can engage and help you out or just cheer on from the sidelines um learn what you guys are learning as well um i guess the, the, yeah i mean even if there's like funding can, can people donate to help pay for what you guys are doing oh wow that's a really good question um yes they can i that's a good question for kevin all right. We'll, we'll ask him. <laughs> um, yeah. I think the short answer is yes, but I don't know the specifics of how. And um, in terms of other, yeah. So funding is always kind of a limiting resource to what to what we can do. So um, that's a really important aspect of how we get things done and how we learn more about ungulates. Um, following us on Instagram is great. We also have a website that's specifically geared towards communicating our research in a way that anyone can understand like you don't need to have a PhD to understand this which is how I hope all research would be communicated but you can if you google ungulate compendium you can find our website Um, and then as far as other forms of help we are all like very excited about science communication but we do have limited time like we have projects to run and we have classes to take and so um, having people like Jess for example who collaborate with us and help us communicate what we're doing or like Marsha what you're doing right now which is amazing like having people who have skills that we don't have the time to develop who want to collaborate with us so there's someone potentially who wants to do some animations for us and people who have skills that they think they could use to help us communicate what we're doing. That's always amazing to have people reach out about that. Okay, we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsor. We will be right back. In South Dakota, hunting is our shared legacy, something everyone can be a part of. That's why we're focused on making our fields a welcome place for everyone. See how at huntthegreatestsd.com, where you can hear stories from sportswomen and learn what makes South Dakota the world's pheasant capital. While you're there, enter for a chance to hunt with Sportsman Channel's Melissa Bachman and win free gear from DSG Outerwear. Learn more at huntthegreatestsd.com forward slash DSG. So welcome back. Uh, Rebecca, I'm curious, what led you, you you mentioned that you were in education before you changed over to wildlife research. What led you to wildlife research? It's one of those things where when I look back at it, it all seems very logical and like a straight path here. But it, at the time, it felt very confusing. I So I started, my family likes to be outside and like walking around the neighborhood or going on day hikes, but I didn't really at home have any sort of introduction to being in the backcountry. But when I was 11, I started going to this camp that exclusively did these wilderness trips, whether it's canoeing and backpacking. Um, and so that was my first introduction. And I just like loved being outside and playing with other kids and like being dirty and not showering. <laughs> um, and that progressed into, I did that as a camper for a long time. And then 
after I turned 18, I started guiding backpacking trips and from there switched into doing a little bit more science education and outdoor education. Um, But I had this job in based in Missoula, working in Yellowstone, where I was taking high schoolers into the park and we were collaborating with national parks biologists and helping them collect data. And it was the first time that I realized that people did this type of work. Hmm. Like it wasn't just five people who were on National Geographic <laughs> who did this kind of work. Um, so that was a big eye opener. And and from there, I kind of tried to start breaking into wildlife. And um, yeah, I got a job doing small mammal work. And then the person that I worked with on that job knew Brittany and Rachel and said, like she knows her stuff and they hired me and here I am. It was kind of an accelerated track from like, oh, maybe I want to do wildlife work to then just fully being in it, doing my master's. It's very cool. And what can you can you share with us one of your favorite memories from the field, whether it's like backcountry backpack guiding or um, research? Based? Yeah, yeah. Just want to totally. just tell us a story. Um. Okay, before this, before this call, I was trying to think of the first time I saw a moose. Mm. And maybe I saw one when I was really young that I don't remember. But the first time that I remember seeing a moose, I was 17. And I was on one of these backpacking trips. And we were in the Brooks Range in Alaska. So this tundra, huge river valley. And we had been hiking along this gravel bar at the bo- at the bottom of this valley and stopped for lunch and it was kind of a long trip so we were trying to do things to like, spice it up and keep everyone kind of like interested and we were eating lunch and someone got out the a deck of cards and we were like playing poker on this gravel bar um, and there's like, some big willows close by and we heard a weird noise um and of course with our 17 year old brains we thought it would be a good idea to grab the bear spray and go investigate instead of just getting out of there well points Uh, for grabbing the bear spray first yeah (laughs) and we had seen we had had a few bear encounters none of them like super close and it had all worked out just fine but so we were kind of like seeing what was going on and like the sound was persisting and like looking and there's kind of this darkness through the willows uh, we're probably like 50 yards away from them and all of a sudden just see these two sets of antlers like two of the biggest bull moose to this day that I've ever seen just like rising from the willows and I remember the woman in front of me who had the bear spray turned around like total panic in her eyes say like moose 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 run 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 we like ran and like threw our backpacks on like someone had a handful of cards in their hands and just we ran away because we were so scared so i think that's a very valid response (laughs) it is it's a very valid response and i remember from our podcast with um called don't run that moose is the one exception to that (laughs) yes yeah run definitely Run, run run Which is a nice segue, Jess. I feel you. really validated, actually, after hearing this story. Uh, and and Rebecca, I know you've heard uh, you've heard the moose story from Grand Teton. Um, yeah, I ran. Good. I wanna. Yeah, I heard Sam's version, but I would love to hear your experience of it. Well, I mean, I guess I prefaced this with the fact that we were on a very unique uh, trip into Grand Teton National Park to volunteer with the National Park Service in helping preserve the bighorn sheep population that is in there. Um, That bighorn sheep population is genetics that they can trace back pretty much to the Ice Age, which is pretty incredible. Um, And they are in danger because of a lot of disease transmission that happens between mountain goats and bighorn sheep. Um, Mountain goats, unfortunately, are non-native to the Tetons. Um, this is an instance where a very charismatic species is non-native, but is uh, endangering another. Um, and so out of a lot of consternation and um, hot button issue discussions, they decided that they need to eradicate the mountain goats out of the Tetons. 
um, part of their plan has been to utilize hunters in doing that. So that's the whole preface of we were in there. Um, we were in there in camo with orange hats and our task was to help take down the mountain goat population there. Um, so we were not in places that people often are, at least our group was not. Uh, we were way deep into a canyon that um, when I tell you it takes three hours to go a mile is very serious. So super thick, like perfect moose habitat, you know, it's the kind of like dark, gnarly like <laughs> deep shadowed brush up to your eyeballs kind of thing that feels really great walking through <laughs> <laughs> um, but we we got to this uh and and I'll preface this with I'd seen a grizzly bear up there the day before this happened um and so we got to this like one random tiny little meadow that was maybe 30 yards wide so it wasn't like a big meadow we spread out, we were glassing up, looking at mountain goats. We were kind of spread throughout it. I think Sam was sort of in the center of the meadow. Uh, three of our other companions were over on the far side. Um, and I was standing at the very tip of it with my arm in the air, holding a Garmin in reach straight up because <laughs> our location, like our location services were not working. We were, we were supposed to check in and I could not get enough satellite signal to actually send the lat long for them. Um, and so I was standing there with my arm up in the air and I, and I say this because we actually have a photo of me standing in there with my arm up and I start hearing like, like footsteps and Sam like looks at me and she goes, that sounds like a large mammal. <laughs> and I went, that is a large mammal, something big. And I turned around and the brush that was on the sides of this, uh, this, opening and then there's a really heavily used wildlife trail sort of right through the center of it but the brush on all the sides is pretty heavy so he turned around and I was the closest person to whatever was coming down the trail and all I had was this inreach because I had left my bear spray stupidly on my backpack so now my bear spray is always on my chest harness <laughs> um, and I saw the brown hackled hump of a very large mammal moving very fast down the trail. My brain went, went grizzly. <laughs> and I turned around and looked at everybody and went, grizz! Everybody stood up. Sam had the bear spray out. Um, Jared Frazier had the bear spray out. Uh, Craig Okraska grabbed a camera. <laughs> <laughs> of course he did. <laughs> I, I'm not sure like what we feel about it, other than he's the most hardcore photographer I've ever met. <laughs> um, and... <laughs> And I just turned and freaking like just tried to book it behind Sam with a uh, bear spray and hit a snarly branch that was coming out. I just, I mean, like the kind of hard hit I hit into the rocks was the kind that shattered oh. a phone and I was bruised all over and scraped up. This all in the time of me turning around and seeing a young bull moon. And I say young, he had little nubbies. He wasn't even like a branch antler. He was just like young, um, wild-eyed, splay leg, tongue out, like terrified of whatever was up the trail from him. And he, in what felt like a half an hour's worth, but was likely 0.7 seconds, um, <laughs> made the decision that we were less scary than whatever was behind him and oh, he God. just like I mean it was the equivalent of like a little kid just like closing his eyes and running he was just like oh god I just gotta get through it and he like closed his eyes and charged forward he came I mean we all just got kind of blown out of the way Sam got him on one side with bear spray so we veered off towards the other crew Jared let his bear spray go painted his other side with it and he just won this moose had a really bad day um <laughs> And he went just barreling off into the underbrush and we were left. Um, I was sort of in the center of all of this happening on the ground, covered in two sets of bear spray, coughing. And, you <laughs> oh know, one of our crew went and like stuck her head in the river. Like, oh. I mean, and like Sam looks at me and Sam is just unfrickin' phased. She's like, I'm not even shaking. Is that normal? <laughs> Like, I'm like on the ground, like, oh my God, oh my God, what did that, like, you know, because he just came over. It felt like he just ran over all of us. And um, I just had the one, was the one with the bruises to show it. But it was like, 
you know, no one's fault other than maybe I should have had bear spray on my chest harness and that was a dumb move, but like was not provoked. Poor little guy was just trying to get away from whatever was up the trail from him, which we never saw because as soon as we deployed two sets of bear spray, everybody made eye contact and looked up trail and everybody else had bear spray out at that point going, what is coming after a moose? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and, and yeah, that was, it's, it was a, it was the most interesting part of that entire trip for sure. Um, and that moose had a really rough day, but the phenomenal thing about it is one, how much bear spray sticks to things. It's oil-based. Um, I still can't put my backpack in a truck without people coughing around it. And for the next three days that we were still in this uh, Canyon and doing this work everywhere we went down there, you'd hit these like trail patches where everybody would end up coughing because this moose with, two cans worth of bear spray on him had been running through and you found places where he'd rolled and swam and rolled and you'd be on like game trails where he'd brush against something and you walk into a particularly heavy spot and start coughing even like miles from where this incident happened um so yeah it was a very interesting experience and um i i had well i've always had a lot of respect for moose um i have even more respect than that now. Um, but they, that poor little guy, you know, and I say little, he's still the size of a horse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, yeah, he had a rough day. And um, yeah, I hope he's doing better. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you're okay. That yeah. sounds very scary. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was very scary. I definitely had it's the first time I think I've had enough time in the midst of an accident to have the thought I might not live through this. Mm. <laughs> um, just because where I was, he had like, he very much could have run right over the top of me and, and didn't, he came very close to it, but did not. Um, and my brain just calculated, like I was like the pathway of least, least resistance at that point. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that was one of the more sobering, like I've been in like, bad situations or like you know been in cliffy areas or like in the northwest territories on some like steep mountain sides that felt really unsafe but I've never had that feeling of like well this is how I go and (laughs) um I was like damn like I don't have bear spray on me I'm gonna be the idiot that doesn't have bear spray on him like so uh yeah lessons learned well I'm glad the only casualty there was your phone yeah, or, yeah, very shattered cell phone. It's actually bent. You look oh, bent. wow. <laughs> That's intense. I'm going to do some research to how much pressure it takes to bend a phone. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but um, keep doing the work on that thermal, the yeah. thermal cover research because that little moose was needing it. He was, uh, he was like, he was everything I could see a very heat distressed animal was. It was probably two o'clock, three o'clock in the afternoon, and he'd been running for a little while. Oh, buddy. Uh, Rebecca, this has been an awesome conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. Is there anything you want to, is there something we haven't covered that you want to be sure to talk about? Um, I, oh, I, well, this might, this might send us down a rabbit hole, but one of the most, one of the most exciting things that I've learned about moose since I started this project is that they're um, like New Zealand's Bigfoot. What? Um, in 1910, moose were introduced to an area in New Zealand called Fjordland and the population never really took off. And the last confirmed sighting was in 1980. But since then they're like every once in a while, there's a really blurry trail camera photo or a hair snag, or some twigs that look distinctly moose-chomped. And um, it's my pipe dream to go and look for the elusive (laughs) New Zealand moose. Oh my god, that is amazing. What species, like what subspecies was introduced? Do they know? Yeah, it was the um, species in Canada, Americanus, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, that is so cool. Let's do it. 
Yeah. Can we start an, an Artemis Discovers like channel where, where we just go around and look for moose in New Zealand? <laughs> that would be so cool. I'm yeah, I've, I've been trying to think of ways that I can pitch it as research. So some sort of like I'm gonna make a model that predicts where moose are most likely to be and then I have to go there of course and see if my model works and validate it yeah exactly I do think we have some listeners in New Zealand um so we could reach out to them especially and say hey check out this moose ridden area and by the way Rebecca will be there in a week yes (laughs) awesome oh well that might be the uh the best thing I have learned yet on moose is that they are also the bigfoot because it makes a lot of sense yeah it kind of fits with their whole personality it really does i mean i still think my favorite uh sort of local term for moose is swamp donkey so (laughs) (laughs) i'd never heard that or i had heard it because there was a drink at a like a local bar (laughs) but i never related it to i think it was some take on a moscow mule so you um, tell me it oh, had like yeah. moose head ale in it or something. I, yeah, I don't remember now what was in it, but I just, yeah, I just connected it with moose. I did not know that's what it was from. <laughs> Good old swamp donkeys. <laughs> awesome. Oh boy. Well, this is possibly the, like I said, best hour I have spent. Um, and I was including my time in Grand Teton National Park, which was incredible. So, uh, Rebecca, thank you for this and and thank you for the work that you're doing and the engagement that you're reaching out with and and um, I just like let us know where, how, when we can support what you're doing and and get more of this information out there. It's really fascinating. And, yeah, thank and, you both so much. And please keep us updated on your research and as soon as you have some of that amazing video footage, uh, I would love to see it. Yeah, <laughs> I'll be sure I'll be sure to share it with you all and I yeah I the research is like one one step in a very long chain of making sure that science is incorporated into management and so thank you both for being like different parts of that chain and Rebecca keep us posted on your antelope hunt too good luck with that yeah I'll yeah I'll let you know how it goes hopefully I'll have some pictures to share too oh we'd love that yeah All right. If you would like to learn more about the Monteith Shop, this passionate group, their exciting work, and even support their efforts, please go to ungulatecompendium.org. Also keep up to date on their activities and get exposed to interesting facts about ungulates by connecting with them through their social media handle at monteith.shop, M-O-N-T-E-I-T-H dot S-H-O-P. If you have more questions on Rebecca's research, please don't hesitate to shoot us an email, artemis at nwf.org. Thanks for joining us this week on the Artemis Podcast. Until next week, be bold, stay curious, and get outside. Mm-hmm.